Hi, my name is Thomas, and I am going to tell you a story. Before we get started, note that this is the last episode of the season. So if you're just joining us, I'd recommend pausing here and starting from the beginning. Also, since this is a new story set in a fantastical land, it may not be the best experience to multitask while you listen. We are recording in our respective homes, safely distanced as the world finds its way out of a pandemic. There is no music, and there are no sound effects. But, if you like, you can imagine that we are alone, you and I, in a pale desert, a merciless tundra, with only the occasional beat of hooves to disturb that great, vast emptiness. This is the Oligar. In an overgrown clearing, a boy plays in the loam. He pushes his dark hands into the darker earth. They come up loaded with worms and decaying plant matter. Massive trees sway above him, whispering quietly in the language of leaves and wind. His hair is cut short, and he wears a plain linen tunic stained green and brown from many days spent like this one. I'm frightened, Ull. The voice comes from behind the boy, but he doesn't turn around. He inspects his fistfuls of dirt carefully and says nothing. The bad thing will find us soon, the voice continues. A child with a crown of sandy brown curls steps from the shadows and approaches the boy. This clearing would be perfect for a fig tree, the boy says. Just the right amount of moisture. He looks up at the sky overhead, the optimal balance of light and shade. The sandy-haired child steps forward again. They have soft, sylvan features, which are slightly incongruous with the necklace of small animal bones they seem to have made themselves. Their round eyes narrow in annoyance at the boy in front of them. Oh, are you listening to me? The boy in the stained tunic drops his fistfuls of loam back to the ground and brushes his hands against each other. The bad thing will always find us. That is the balance for us. Everything here is good, so the bad thing is drawn to us. He gets to his feet and turns to face the sandy-haired child. It's like matter and antimatter. We exist in the suspension between the two. The two look at each other for a long moment. Then, the fairer child giggles. <laughs> I only ever understand half of what you say, Ull. The boy frowns, deeply, the serious expression so comical on his young face that the other child laughs even harder. There's no use being frightened, he says, exasperated. The bad thing will keep finding us until our people come to take us home. The sandy-haired child stops laughing abruptly. Henry says our people don't exist. The boy looks away, up, and through the swaying canopy of trees. Don't listen to her. She might be the eldest, but she isn't right about everything. 
He looks down and through the trees opposite them. She was wrong about the bad thing. She said, it wouldn't follow us here. A vibration buzzes across the ground, and the boy takes a step back. Come on, he takes the sandy-haired child's hand. It's here. You really think there are people looking for us? says the child with the necklace of bones. It's impossible to know for sure. The boy furrows his brow again as he leads them out of the clearing and into the dimness of the jungle. But I suppose I believe it. So now you're chewing the wagon, boy. It is time for you to die. Gadazar's nostrils flare. For a moment, he seems to smile as his great mouth opens wide. Like a dog panting, his tongue extends, and something ignites deep within his chest. Instinct seizes control of Yochi's body, and he hurls himself bodily from the top of the mound of arms and armor, just before it is engulfed by green and orange flames. An iron helm cracks in the heat, a bronze shield buckles and melts over the conflagrating wooden haft of a drooping halberd. Clutching the divine spear tight in one fist, Yochi caroms off of a legionnaire's shield and manages to roll to his other hand and knees. The dragon advances, placing its scaly claws carefully in the open corridors between his piles of treasure. Yochi dashes into a curtained golden archway, just as another blast of flame spills across the floor where he had landed. He clambers into this pile, a dim web of embroidered loom crafts, heavy cloth banners draped over silver rods, and tapestries dedicated to long-dead lords. Kalians are quicker on their feet than I remember. Yochi feels the shadow of the great beast pass over him. I do not wish to destroy all that I am guardian over, boy. A massive talon rends the velvet overhanging Yochi's hiding place. His chest expands with the involuntary gasp of an inhale, and he scrambles away. The whole pile shifts, and he is nearly struck on the head by a wrought iron flagpole as a huge scaled fist of centuries-old artifice is lifted away. But that does not mean I won't. Gemogen starts forward, her face bloodless, her eyes wide. Yochi. She murmurs. He'll be crushed if he isn't burnt alive. Alt, we have to do something. She looks to her left, just in time to see the hem of Alt's cloak disappear around the nearest mound of relics as he runs into the labyrinth of treasure. Damn it. She turns the other way and runs towards the dragon, yelling. Hey, over here. The dragon's head swivels. What's this? Your traveling companions? Are they so eager to join you in death? Katu and Nereset look at each other. They're here! Gemogen and the... and Alton Setsig! Go, find them. Tell them about the enchanted water. I'll try and get to Yochi. Without wasting another breath, Nereset draws their palma and uses it like a crutch to propel themselves forward down the clear path ahead and into the vault. Katu nods and takes off running down the nearest path to his left, 
He ducks against a blast of wind as one of the dragon's wings passes over him. Disoriented, he gets back to his feet and keeps running. Come on, Katu. You can do this. He pounds through the labyrinth of treasure mounds. The tip of Gadazar's tail catches on a pile of silver jugs, sending them clanging down in front of him. He throws his arms over his head and keeps going, rounding a bend and coming upon the pile of arms and armor. Something on the floor catches his attention, and he slides to a halt. There is the small disc-shaped object cast down by Yochi, covered in black dirt. It's out of place, not obviously a treasure of any kind. He reaches down and picks it up. Gadazar's eyes fix on Gemogen, and she skids to a halt on a path between two great piles of shining gems. The great scaled paw of the beast lands in front of her, causing a small landslide of jewels on either side. Its claws flex. You should not have come here, Eladian. You will not care for the truth about your gods. If I wanted pretty happy things, I'd content myself with lies. I know what comes with truth, dragon. Katu presses his thumb to the center of the disc. He grimaces with the effort, but only for a moment. The center depresses, then gives way as a bulge of earth falls away from the square-shaped hole. His hands shaking, Katu unfastens his canteen and pours water over the thing, scrubbing with the corner of his tunic. He holds it aloft. Even free of dirt, it's nearly black, a token several shades darker green than the centurium jade coin around his neck. He gasps aloud. Gamogen! His voice echoes about the vault. Gadazar freezes. I found a coin. Centurion Jade, dark as night. You were right. The gods lived here first. Before the Iconomaki, before Cella Celestia, they lived here and migrated. Gadazar snarls. How many of you are there? The dragon arches its neck, raising its head into the sky. Its roving eyes find Katu. Yes, venerate priest, and upon this point your religion crumbles. The gods are not static. They are not binary. They do not simply exist or not exist. They loved you once as they loved me. And they abandoned you too as she abandoned me. She... Realization dawns on Katu's face. For she named him King of Cats. Your mother, Anurana. You dare speak her name to me! Gadazar wheels once again and breathes fire down the paths in Katu's direction. A roiling wave of an inferno rushes towards him, and he throws himself behind a great stone statue to avoid it. A few treasure piles away, Mariset sees the wisps of plasma. It stops them in their tracks, and they shrink from the flickering light far closer than before. They take a long, ragged breath and gather their wits. Ugh, where is the spirit of the Idaste? The fire sputters out, and the dragon reels back, hacking with a terrible sound. <laughs> Katu's eyes widen. 
He steps out from his hiding place. Running low on tinder? He taunts. Then he takes off fleeing down the paths as the coughing dragon pursues him. Anrana was just a girl, a stupid girl who thought she could make a better world. And she had power, yes, an incomprehensible power that swept up all who trusted her with it. Like me, her oldest companion. I saw her grow from an unfortunate hedge witch in another damn dimension into the goddess over all creation! Katu reaches the great forge itself. The huge stone and metal crucible rises from a great pool of water, fed by the same stream that Nariset and he had followed in. Ringing the pool of water are strange levers and wheels, nearly as tall as Katu. He stumbles to a halt at the edge of the water, then falls back on his heels as Gadazar swoops over him and alights upon the other side. And look how that turned out. Not much different from the old world, if you ask me. The dragon's nostrils flare. Katu looks about desperately, then seizes upon the nearest lever and throws it. Near the base of the forge, a grate swings open, and a deluge of coals falls from the white-hot interior and into the cool water that surrounds it, sending up an explosion of hissing steam. It shimmers like a cloud of diamonds. Katu's eyes widen, each fizzing with a million sparks of light. Within the white cloud of water droplets, Katu sees a great green forest, a verdant sprawl of trees wrapped in flowering vines. Ah, yes, gaze upon the so-called infinite wild. The woods on the other side of the world, where the once mighty gods have lost themselves so thoroughly. Katu's face melts with wonder. Why haven't you gone after them? Gadazar laughs coldly. <laughs> because, priest, I was given a command to protect them from exactly the sort of thing your wagon boy brought with him. Gadazar's eyelid twitches. His voice, which a moment before had shaken Katu's bones, trembles. And besides, they do not remember me any more than they remember you. Nearby, Yochi extricates himself from a maze of carved ivory elephants. He keeps low, recovering his breath. He looks up, but cannot see the dragon. He lets out a long and staggered exhale and straightens. He freezes. Directly in front of him, placid and threatening as ever, is the red-mouthed man. The puppeteer raises his hand and points. Yochi's body jerks and his head turns to follow the red-mouthed man's finger down a corridor formed by stacks of shadowy wooden chests. At the end of the corridor, beyond the dim walls of oaken holds and past yet another pile of forgotten wealth, he sees Gemogen. Gadazar, peering through the steam around the forge, suddenly stiffens. Ah, a new smell. 
Oil and sulfur. Yochi, is it he? Has the red-mouthed man arrived to pull your strings? Yochi walks purposefully down the corridor. Gemogen sees him. Yochi? Yochi, you have to get out of here. She starts running towards him. Yochi raises the spear in one hand. Yochi, what are you? Her pace slows. The red-mouthed man leers at her from behind Yochi. His eyes flicker with malice and excitement. Her leg spasms. She grunts as her body begins to move against her will. Nearby, Gadazar prowls and sniffs the air. Ah, most incautious star. Did you bind your soul to Yochi's? You must be more careful. You never know who might be a devil's pawn. The dragon's words echo about the vault. Deep in stacks of invaluable texts, Alt goes still, his fingers curled around the spine of a millennium past's heroic memoir. His eyes linger on something buried deep beyond the shelves, a carved marble feather resting on the dim leather binding of a hidden volume. He sets down the book in hand and looks back towards the chaos. Katu follows the dragon's gaze with alarm. Gemogen, where are you? Yochi and the Aladian approach each other as Gemogen's shaking fingers unlace her leather cuirass to expose the wool shirt beneath. The surrounding piles of treasure seem almost to move of their own accord as their legs transport them to each other. They come to a crossroads between the piles, where another path intersects theirs amidst three great mounds of artifacts from a long-gone era. Gemogen comes to a stop in front of Yochi. A rogue strand of blonde hair has fallen from her braid and hangs over her nose. Her jaw shakes as she forces words out. We're so close. I won't let that thing destroy all that we've worked for. Yochi raises his spear high above his head. I know. Yochi brings the spear down. Its bladed point is knocked aside by a gloved hand, which receives a bloody gash in thanks. The cartographer prince's chest heaves as he emerges at the end of a mad dash from the adjoining path. <laughs> Alt grabs for the spear's haft, but Yochi pulls it swiftly away. The prince presses closer, holding Yochi's spear arm with one hand and grabbing Yochi around the shoulder with the other. Yochi, stop! It's not you! This isn't you! Gadazar's eyes follow the sound of Alt's voice. There you are. Yochi's mind is on fire. He ducks and throws his shoulder into Alt's stomach, sending the prince reeling. Only Yochi's eyes still feel his own. They sting with hot tears as he looks from Alt to the terrible visage of the red-mouthed man behind him. He wants to scream, to stop, to do anything but raise his spear again. He raises his spear again. Enough! Gadazar's tail cracks, 
Yochi narrowly avoids its slap upon the ground before him, hopping backwards at the last second. The tail sweeps Gemogen and Alt away as Gadazar levels his snout towards Yochi. Yochi is left alone in the crossroads of the labyrinth. I have you now. The dragon takes a deep breath. Yochi shakes his head as if to clear water from his ears. Time seems to slow as he struggles against the fog of control. He catches the red-mouthed man once more in his peripheral vision. He looks disappointed. Yochi, what do we say when times get tough? Narasat's voice drifts into his consciousness from far away, breathless with urgency. Abedjia? That's right. Narasat vaults from the tower of carved furnishings, using the edge of a great oaken door and landing upon their good leg. With a grunt of effort, they spin the door over their head, shading Yochi from the bright spark of fire in Gadazar's throat. They look at Yochi, and they smile. Anything's better than getting eaten alive. <laughs> Green flames spout from Gadazar's maw. Yochi falls to one knee. Nariset presses their shoulder against their improvised shield. The fire hits the thick wooden door like a geyser, pouring over it and splashing out around them. Water streams from Nariset's eyes in pain, and yes, fear too. But they set their countenance against it, and roar in defiance as the door disintegrates to ash, and they too are engulfed in flame. Then, suddenly, it is over. Gadazar inhales, his eyes narrow at the tableau before him. Nariset's burnt body leans upright against the charcoal skeleton of the door. Yochi, Singed but unscorched, crouches behind them. Well, a trade has been executed. Yochi, an overture of grief and fury swirling in the back of his mind, is gripped first with urgent purpose. He pivots, turning the metal spear in his hands, clammy with adrenaline. The red-mouthed man stands there, his shoulders hunched in animal confusion. Yochi drives the spear through the red-mouthed man's chest. It pierces straight through him. Yochi gasps audibly, his hands releasing the spear. He shakes like a leaf as he backs away. Oh, gods! The red-mouthed man looks down at the glinting metal haft, emerging from his chest. It looks up, angry, terrifying. Its bloody mouth opens, revealing sharp and jagged teeth. It reaches out its hands, snarls, and leaps at Yochi. Gemogen lunges. She grabs the haft of the spear emerging from the red-mouthed man's back. She pulls it from him, spins it once in the air above her head, then drives the spear through the red-mouthed man's skull. The tip of the blade pokes through the creature's forehead. His eyes 
roll back. Yochi inhales sharply. The red-mouthed man falls to the floor. He twitches once, twice, then goes still. His jaw slack, blood seeps from his lips and pools on the stone floor. Whatever life once animated him, it is gone. One of you a servant to Erdik Khan. The dragon rumbles. I suppose I should thank you. But then, you brought him here, and who knows what knowledge he has already gleaned. He raises his head, and his voice trembles again in that strange way it did with Katu. No. What is best is that I kill you all quickly. Then I can put my collection back to rights and resume my long guardianship in peace. The dragon's lungs expand with a self-pitying moan of a breath. Katu climbs the stack of iron implements nearest him, muttering furiously. Ara's fierce familiar bade to help protect the things she made. God damn it! How did that old temple nursery rhyme go? Gadazar coughs and the barest lick of a flame stutters from his mouth. He growls. I have been, perhaps, too generous in my disbursement of cleansing fire. A cold smile spreads across his scaled face. But I am a creature most comfortable with claws. Katu shouts. But when she missed her king of cats... Gadazar's neck jerks his head round to look back at the cloud of steam. No! She spoke Minmur, and then they played! Gadazar roars. There is an odd quality to it, a high-pitched wail that comes to overtake the low tones of his voice as he begins to shrink in stature. His scales soften and melt away, and from the soft skin sprouts black fur instead. His snout recedes into a heart-shaped nose, his neck pulls back into his body, which in turn pulls itself in upon itself, until Gadazar the dragon is rendered a small, black cat. Only the eyes remain unchanged, yellow and bright with fury. Yochi begins to faint. Gemogen catches him. He shudders against her chest. Nair said. I know. They saved your life. They saved us both. They must have figured it out. Figured it out? The red-mouthed man. The trade of my soul. I barely understand it myself, but Nerset's life for mine. It broke the claim he had over us. Gemogen's eyes go wide with wonder. Omen is Azda. Now that is a Thar deserving of their name. Gemogen looks at Alt. He's picked himself up from where he landed, some paces away. Thank you. Alt nods. You have been... strange, traveling companions. But if I pretend to have any honor... It is against my nature to trust easily. I hope you can forgive me. He crouches and extends his bloodied hand towards Gadazar the cat. The cat sniffs it suspiciously, then begins licking the wound. 
alt grimaces. Did you find your book? The first history? Alt looks up at her. Yes. They rejoin Katu by the forge, still wet with warm mist. Katu has been examining the thing, and as soon as he sees Gemogen, he launches into excited speculation as to its potential significance in the celestial texts. He cuts himself off abruptly, though, when he sees the others. Nereset? Their name is a question. Gemogen shakes her head. Katu sobers. He gestures to the pool. This water is an ancient magic that connects the whole world. Nereset and I passed through it to get here, and the dragon said, I believe the gods passed this way after the cataclysm. Gemogen nods. Then we can escape the same way. I'm sorry I doubted you. Katu, don't think for a second that I expected all of this. Katu takes a deep breath. He walks with purpose to a great wheel mechanism, suspended in a stone well at one edge of the pool. It comes up to his chest. He takes hold of two spokes, and with all his might, he pulls the wheel round. In the heart of the forge, a chain goes taut, and as Katu turns the great wheel hand over hand, a white-hot ring is pulled forth, a great circle of nearly molten metal. It swings out of the mouth of the forge, and its bottom half splashes into the water of the pool with another hiss of steam. It forms a sort of gate, its rapidly cooling frame emerging from the water and brightening to an orange-red at its apex. In the center, the steam swirls and billows, an emerald forest visible in its eddies. Katu walks to join Gemogen and Yochi looking in. Alt steps backwards. Yochi notices and turns to him. Aren't you coming with us? Alt laughs. <laughs> I don't know where you're going, but my quest leads me home now. I've seen the first history. It's buried back by the entrance, amongst a jumbled Athenium of lesser books. I know I can get it. He looks down at Gadazar. The cat is prowling between the cartographer's boots. That is, assuming this one stays a cat. Yochi twists his brow wryly. He kneels down and extends his hand. Gadazar approaches cautiously, and Yochi scratches the animal behind his ears. Alt watches this with something like amazement. He shakes his head. I saw Golgyuk tied up in the entry hall. I'll supply myself the best I can from this place and take my chances on horseback. Yochi nods and straightens up again. Gadazar rubs his chin against Yochi's leg. You could come with me. I'm sure Golgyuk could carry us both. We could return to Whisper City together. Yochi considers this. He looks back at the gate of steam. I think I'll find my own way back. He meets Gemogen's eyes. Gemogen must be wearing off on me. I want to see this through. Alt nods. A thought occurs to him. 
He unsnaps the fasteners in the wide leather pouch on his bandolier and draws out his red leather journal. He whispers something over it, then tosses it to Yochi. Yochi catches it. The great deeds of great men must be recorded. Yochi doesn't know how to respond. He smiles a bit embarrassedly. But the prince is looking at him with such an earnest expression that he tries his best to compose himself. He presses his lips together in what he hopes is an appropriately solemn manner and nods. Then he picks up the cat, turns, and walks through the gate. Yochi steps out of the mist, with Gemajin and Katu not far behind. A serious-looking boy is playing in the dirt. He looks to be about eight or nine years old. When they draw close, they see he is sorting sticks by height, arraying them in a great fan across the ground before him. He wears a plain linen tunic, stained green and brown. He looks up when they approach and cocks his head to one side. You're new. Katu frowns in confusion. You're a child? Gemogen looks up. From the forest beyond, a girl with red hair appears. Gadazar leaps from Yochi's hands and goes galloping towards her. Her face lights up. Minmur! she exclaims and bends to sweep the cat into her arms. Where did you find him? she says excitedly. Yochi looks to Gemogen for a clue to how he ought to respond, but she looks as bewildered as Katu. He was... He turns to look back the way they came. The mist has evaporated, leaving only more forest behind. Just that way. Katu unloops the jade coin from around his neck and holds it and its darker predecessor out to the boy with the sticks. These? Do you recognize these? The boy looks from the coins to Katu. No, he says, sounding rather annoyed. Yochi kneels down beside him. What are we doing here? This is a very orderly arrangement of sticks. The boy's face lights up. Do you think so? I'm sure I've swapped a pair here or there. Their memories, Katu. They don't remember who they are, or what they are. Katu looks at Gemogen, his confusion distilled into concern. Gemogen is still staring at the girl across the clearing, the girl with the red hair. After the cataclysm, she didn't want to be a god anymore. The girl approaches slowly, cautiously, but without fear. She circles the fan of sticks, careful not to disturb them. Katu and Yochi watch her. In the corner of Yochi's eye, he catches several more children peering at them from behind the trees. The girl stops in front of Gemogen. Anrana? Gemogen whispers. How do you know my name? The goddess asks. Gemogen kneels down. After a moment, she laughs. 
I've known you my whole life. She smiles. And yet, I've spent most of it looking for you. This was the seventh and final episode of The Oligar and of season two of Thomas Tells a Story. The show is written and created by myself, Thomas Constantine Moore, and our theme music is by Joe Mendick. Yochi is voiced by Heron Atkins, Gemogen by Molly Griggs, Katu by Jeffrey Omura, Nerisset by Alexis Floyd, the cartographer by Heath Saunders, and the voice of Gadazar was provided by guest star Nico Benson. Thank you for listening. The sun still shines, the wind still blows. Well, another one bites the dust. I want to thank Darren Colley and Tianan Trent, who are two of my best friends from high school and read every single episode before I recorded it and gave me extremely good feedback on the episodes. Uh, they were my early readers for this season. Um, the story would be much worse without them, um, so I want to acknowledge them. I'm really happy with how this story turned out. This podcast has always been an experiment, and I tried some new and different things with season two. Um but as I'm sure uh, you are aware, uh, this kind of narrative fiction has always been challenging to produce with uh, frequency and regularity. Um, I don't know uh, if there will be a season three, but if you liked this story, please, please do let me know. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Thomas C. Most, and uh, I'd love to hear from you. Um, I think that's it. It's around 6 a.m. in New York where I'm recording this. It's probably time to get some sleep. Thanks again, and good night.